Bear with me a little bit longer tonight. I try to get through this sermon. Thank the Lord I was able to get through this morning. It took me a little long to get through it, but was that an amen for how long it took? I wasn't sure about that. How many of you have ever made a mistake? Okay. Well, if you, you, know, if you didn't raise your hand, that, that's the biggest mistake you ever made. You, you've told a lie right here in church. Well, none of us, of course, can claim that we don't make mistakes because none of us are infallible. We're imperfect people, and we all do make mistakes. Well, when you make a mistake, though, the most important test of your character is what you do to rectify that mistake. I mean, what, what do you do to make things right again? I once heard about a minister who was having a conversation with a lawyer at a party, and the minister asked the lawyer, he says, what do you do when you make a mistake in court? And the lawyer said, well, if it's a significant error, I try to correct it. But if it's an insignificant one, I, I just ignore it. And the lawyer asked the minister, he said, well, what do you do when you make a mistake in church? And he said pretty much the same thing. He said, once I was preaching and I was supposed to say, the, uh, the uh, devil is the father of all liars. And instead I said, the devil is the father of all lawyers. And so I just let it go. So... <laughs> Well, there are some mistakes that you can ignore and you can just go on with them. But there are other things that you just simply can't ignore. They have to be taken care of. And such was the case, of course, with the spiritual and the tactical blunders that Joshua and the children of Israel made in the defeat at Ai. What they really needed to do was to analyze the mistake that they made. They needed to correct that because God had given them the job of conquering the land of Canaan. And before the land could be possessed, all enemies had to be defeated there. Well, in the last message, we considered what happened to Joshua and Israel in the defeat at Ai. There was that little bitty insignificant town that, that uh, defeated Israel. They had just come off this great spiritual high and a great victory at the Battle of Jericho. And here they come up against little bitty Ai. And there were 36 men of Israel who were killed and they were defeated. As I mentioned last week, those 36 men are the only casualties of war that we find in the entire book of Joshua in all of the military campaigns that they fought. That's the only record of any Israelites that were ever killed. Well, most of us would think, well, that's an acceptable record. I mean, uh, surely that, that's, that's not really a big problem, is it? Well, for Joshua, it was because he knew that Israel was out of the will of the Lord with what happened there. So he had to find out what was going wrong. So Joshua took the steps that he needed to take in order to correct that problem with the defeat at Ai. This evening, we're going to look at chapter 8. And in this chapter, we're going to see how Joshua actually did defeat defeat Ai. And we're going to talk about seven simple truths that we can learn from the defeat at Ai. I'd like you to stand with me, if you would, please. We're going to read the first eight verses of this chapter. And then... um, I'm going to tell you the story of how they defeated Ai, and then we'll get into those seven simple truths. Joshua chapter 8, verse number 1. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into thy hand the king of Ai, and his people, and his city, and his land. And thou shalt do to Ai and her king, as thou didst unto Jericho and her king. Only the spoil thereof and the cattle thereof shall ye take for a prey unto yourselves. Lay thee an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua rose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. 
And Joshua chose out 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, ye shall lie in wait against the city, even behind the city. Go not very far from the city, but be ye all ready. And I and all the people that are with me will approach unto the city. And it shall come to pass when they come out against us as at the first, that we will flee before them. For they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city. For they will say, they flee before us as at the first. Therefore, we will flee before them. Then you shall arise up from the ambush and seize upon the city. For the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it shall be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire. According to the commandment of the Lord shall you do. See, I have commanded you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that we read tonight. And Lord, help us to uh, learn something from this chapter, some truths that we can apply to our own lives. And surely that will show us how we can go forward for you and defeat our enemies. And we just thank you for these things, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. After the defeat at Ai, uh, we remember that Joshua was very distraught. So he went down before his knees and fell on his face before the Lord. And he began to pray and ask God, why was it that they were able to defeat that great fortified city of Jericho? And yet when they came to the little town of Ai, they, they were defeated by those people. Well, God showed Joshua that the reason there was defeat was because there was sin in the camp. And before they could ever expect that God would give them the victory, they had to take care of that sin. And so we remember from chapter 7 that God showed Joshua how to search out that sin. And it was discovered after they went man by man throughout all the children of Israel that they came to one man, just one man out of all of Israel by the name of Achan. And what Achan had done, he had defied the commandment of God. He'd taken the spoils of the city that belonged to God when God said that everything in the city should be destroyed and the gold and the silver and the iron, all that is to go into the treasury of the Lord. But Achan decided to keep that for himself. Well, when they discovered that it was Achan who did this, they took him and his family and they stoned them. And then when that sin was taken care of, Israel was ready to go up against Ai again And this time, they did it a little bit differently because they sought God's counsel in this and asked God to show them how Ai could be defeated. Well, God's plan for the defeated Ai was a much different plan because this one required a military surprise. It required a deceitful tactic that would be used. And what they did then was to draw the men of Ai out of the city so they could capture it. So this military tactic is an ambush. And that was very much different from Jericho because everything they did at Jericho was done out in the open. I mean, everything was done in broad daylight. But here, the victory can only be won if they go under the covert cover of darkness. So God gave a plan to Joshua and he told him, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to set a trap for the men of Ai. Take 30,000 men and I want you to put them on the westward side of the city. Then I want you to take 5,000 more men And I want you to put them between the city of Ai and Bethel. And he said that was for the purpose that if the people of Bethel decided they were going to come and help Ai, that they would be ready for the attack from that side. So they they put this plan in order. And Joshua said, I want you to conceal those 5,000 men because we're going to have an ambush. So he says, here's what you do. You make a frontal assault on the city. 
And then when the men of Ai see that you are attacking, and when they respond to that attack, I want you to act like you're afraid, just like you were the first time when you came and you were defeated by them. And when the men of Ai see that you're running before them, it will draw the men out of the city after you. And then after all the men have left Ai, give the signal and send those 30,000 men that are on the westward side of the city, send them in and set the city on fire. And then when those men of Ai are there out there in the open, I want you to take the men who are lying in wait and I want you to take this ambush and I want you to trap them between you and those other 5,000 men and then you'll be able to defeat them. Well, that was a very simple, but it was an effective plan because everything went exactly like clockwork. Joshua sent the 30,000 men to the western side of the city and they waited there. He put another 5,000 in hiding around the rocks and the, and the brush and all that surrounded the city, which made a very good hiding place. And then Joshua gave the order for the attack. Now, Joshua and his men uh, uh, attacked the city with a very small force, just like they did before. And when the king of Ai saw them, the, the king of Ai said, well, here they come. They're coming just like they did before, and we're going to do to them just what we did before. We're going to chase them out of here, and we're going to kill those men. Well, Joshua drew them out of the city, or he attacked the city. He, he, caused, he called for a retreat, and as they're running away, the men of Ai began to pursue them. Well, I can imagine that those men of Israel, they, they acted like a bunch of scared schoolgirls running away and trying to get away from the men of Ai. So the king of Ai thinks, well, well, we've got them now, so let's go out there and let's finish the job. And in his overconfidence... He took all of the men of, of, of the city of Ai out of the city, and that left the city completely undefended. So while they were running out the front door, the 30,000 men of Israel running in the back door, and so they entered the city and they set it on fire. Well, the men of Ai, they turn around them, uh, behind them, and they look, and they see the city that is on fire, and they say, no, no, we've got to go back and defend the city now. And as they get ready to turn back, those men of Joshua rose up from the ambush and they had them trapped between two forces. Well, at that point, the men of Ai are like shooting ducks in an arcade. And so the men of Israel were able to kill all the men of Ai on the battlefield. After they'd done that, they returned to the city and they killed all the women and the children that were in the city. And on that day, there were 12,000 of the people of Ai who were killed. So Israel obliterated the city of Ai and vengeance was won and God was able to help them to defeat those Canaanites. Well, there's one very noticeable difference in this victory. And that is that this time, God allowed the Israelites to keep all of the spoils of war. So if Achan had just waited, if he'd just been faithful to God, I mean, if he'd just paid attention to what God said, he would have saved his life He would have saved the life of his family, and he'd also have all the riches that he could ever hope for. Well, I want to take the the next few minutes, and we're going to talk about some very simple truths that we learn from what happened in this victory at Ai, or the defeat at Ai, actually. So there are seven simple truths that I want to point out to you tonight about this. The first one is, don't deal with God until you've dealt with sin. In verse number one of this chapter, God said to Joshua, fear not, Neither be they, thy thou dismayed. I have given into thy hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. So God already had a plan of victory that was laid out here to defeat Ai. 
But before God was going to allow them to put that plan into place, they had to deal with the problem of sin in the camp. Now, you may remember that when uh, Joshua and the Israelites went up to defeat Jericho, that one of the things that God said to them, he said, up and sanctify yourselves. God was telling them that before they could ever go in his power, before you can ever defeat any of your enemies, you have to be cleansed from every sin and everything that will hinder your fellowship with me. In Hebrews, the scripture says, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The commentator Albert Barnes has a very interesting note on that scripture because he makes reference to the writer of Hebrews when he says, the sins which does so easily beset us. And he says, these are the sins that we are most prone to. These are the sins that we, by our natural temperament and our disposition, these are the very things that we are tempted to commit. Now, in the case of Achan, he must have been tempted more towards the sin of greed. And so, therefore, that's the thing that Satan used to attack him. And so, that greed caused Achan to turn against God and to take of the accursed thing. So, Satan tempted him in the area that was most vulnerable. Well, that's exactly the way that Satan works in our lives. Because he'll pick out the very thing that, that's your greatest temptation or the vice that you have. And Satan will hammer you with that. He'll hammer with you that with that. He'll come back at you and back at you and back at you until finally you give in to his temptation. Now, you have to watch out for that because God has never given us an excuse to sin. Now, we might be more prone to certain types of sin. We might have that vice that we have. We might have that thing in our life. It's so difficult for us to give up. But God does not allow us any excuses. He doesn't say, well, because that's hard for you, that's all right. I understand your problem. God never gives us an excuse for sin. That seems to be a problem in society, though. Because we try to excuse the problems that we have. I mean, those, those uh, habits that we have and things that we ought not to have in our lives, we excuse ourselves them, from them because they're so difficult for us to deal with. But God will never do that. And the reason that he doesn't is because he always comes to us and he says, I have the power to help you to overcome that problem in your life. So never think that you fall back into sin. That's all, that's all right with God. Because it never is. God has the power to overcome it. So what you have to do, you have to recognize the sin, you confess the sin, and you forsake the sin. And if you don't do it, you'll never be an overcomer in life. So the scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. Sooner or later, you're going to have to deal with sin. It's far better for you to deal with your sin now than for God to have to deal with you later. Now, there's another truth that we learn here. The second one is everybody needs a job with Jesus. One of the mistakes that, uh, of this ordeal is that Joshua followed the advice of his advisors and of his spies. He followed them rather than going to God and asking God what they must do. You remember when Joshua went up against Ai, he took 3,000 men and he thought, well, 3,000 men, now that's, that, that's surely sufficient to take care of those pesky little critters over there at AI. Well, 3,000, though, is not what God intended. Oh, for sure, AI was a small place, but victory had nothing at all to do with the capabilities of their enemy. Victory has to do with the capabilities of God. 
Now we notice in chapter 8 that the fighting force is not the same as the one in chapter 7. Joshua chose out 3,000 men, but God's instructions are, take them all. Verse number 1 says, take all the people of war with thee. So it was Joshua's intention just to involve a few of the Israelites, but God shows us here that he wants everybody involved. And that shows us God's intention for all of his people to be involved in his work. In the church, we need everybody involved in the ministry. Now, unfortunately, we have a lot of people that come to church and they're content to watch the show. They just like to see what goes on here. I mean, they love all the benefits of being church members. That's great. But they really don't do much to contribute to the work that goes on. And so church members come and they, and they sit in the pew and they don't want to get involved because they say, well, I'm just too busy to get involved. I don't want to commit to that. Don't make me make a commitment for anything. And probably it's because they know that if they make a commitment to a job in the church, that means most likely they'll have to be present at every service. And that just does not fit their brand of Christianity. So they don't want to commit. Then you have other people and they just want to show up for church when they feel like it. You'll notice about those Christians that they don't go to work just when they feel like it. Uh, Monday morning, most of us can get up off the sick bed and go to work just like we do all the other times. But on Sunday night, or Saturday night rather, the least little sniffle, if the baby's got to sneeze, then the family's got to stay home. It keeps us out of service. So all week long, we can do everything that we want to do, but then we get that little bitty sniffle on Saturday night and we have to stay home. And I, there's a lot of things that I could bring into that. You know, a lot of church members take, their, take church time to do all their traveling and make all their excursions and they leave their responsibilities behind and leave it for somebody else to do. Well, thank the Lord for this. We've got some people in our church that have three or four, sometimes five different jobs that they're doing and they're willing to fill in for somebody else that's gone just to make sure that the work gets done. Well, here's the point. It's not right for a few people to handle all the work in the church. Everybody needs a job with Jesus, and none of us needs to be welfare church members. We all need a job. Now, the third truth that we learn from this, third simple truth, is don't underestimate the strength of Satan. Now, here, Israel's mistake is thinking that 3,000 men, that's enough to defeat Ai. Well, the truth of the matter is that 600,000 men, all of the men of Israel fighting against Ai, would not have been enough unless God is in the plan, unless God goes with them. And then on the other hand, only three men. That would have been enough to defeat Ai if God so chooses to do it that way. The strength is in God, and we must not underestimate what the devil is able to do. Now, here's the thing we really need to know. The Bible tells us very clearly that we don't fight against flesh and blood. I have several messages that are coming up on this in in the book of Ephesians as we deal with Christian warfare. But the Bible says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, "...for we wrestle not against flesh and blood." but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So as a Christian, you can't just march out there on your own and say, well, I can do it. 
There's this sin and there's this temptation out there. I'm strong enough that I can handle that on my own. I can whip the devil by myself. And the truth of the matter is you can't do it. It's impossible for you to do it. The devil's just simply too strong for us. You know, I, I used to get tickled watching television and television and watching Tammy Faye Baker. You know, Tammy Faye Baker, she'd get those big tears in her eyes and she'd be crying and the makeup would be streaming down her face. She'd clench her fist and she would say, I bind you, devil. I bind you, devil. I was so impressed by that. I mean, that, that's, that's about like whipping Samson and tying him up with wet noodles or something. You can't do it. You don't bind the devil and you can't whip the devil. You're never going to do it with a bunch of hot air. You can talk in tongues all day, all day long if you want to. And you know what will happen to you? The devil will flick you off like a booger. That's exactly what he'll do. Don't underestimate the strength of Satan. Now, here's the thing about Scripture. God does not continually warn us about the devil for no reason at all. There is plenty of information in the Bible about the strength of Satan. Now, you think about Adam and Eve. They couldn't resist the devil when they were in a perfect environment. And not only in a perfect environment, they had no sin nature to deal with. And they could not resist the wiles of the devil. What in the world makes a Christian think today that he is able to defeat the devil when we have this sinful nature, when we're around all the things that we go through? I mean, there's no way that we can do that. And yet, you know, there, there are preachers who will tell you that a person has the power to change his will he can trust Christ any time that he wants to. And the real truth of the matter is these people are fools because they don't understand the power of Satan. Don't underestimate him. You can't do anything on your own. It takes the power of God. Now, simple truth number four. You may have to eat crow before you get the crown. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take a look here at the way this second victory was won. At Jericho, the Israelite armies, they stood up and they were defiant against those walls of Jericho. They marched around the city for seven days, you know, six days, and then seven times on the seventh day. All the time that they're marching around, those people on the walls of Jericho, they're shouting insults, they're shouting taunts at them. And yet Israel stands defiant. They stand straight up right out there in the open, and they are totally fearless as they attack Jericho. And then, with a blast of trumpets and with a, with a shout of triumph, the walls of Jericho fell down. But Ai is a totally different story. When they all go, go against Ai, God gives them different instructions. Because the first time when they went up, they got their rear ends kicked. And so now here they are. They're humbled. And there's a new battle plan. And this time, instead of being out in the open, and instead of facing their enemies head on, and with courage and, and acting like, you know, we're going to run right over you. God instructs them that you must come out against them at night. You've got to act like you're afraid before them. Now, do you see the difference there? What God was doing with Israel was humbling them. They have to pretend they're afraid. And they take off running in fear. That's what their enemies think about them as this battle progresses. I want you to listen to Arthur Pink's comment on this. He says, they pretended to be filled with terror. And instead of making a firm stand against these Canaanites, they gave ground and probably fled in some disorder toward the wilderness. 
Yet, however distasteful and degrading it was for the main body of Israel to feign themselves coward, it was necessary for them to do so if their plan was to succeed. In like manner, there are times when some Christians are required to act a humble part, perhaps a humiliating one, if the task which is assigned to others of their brethren is to be duly accomplished. All cannot occupy positions of equal honor in the church any more than can all the servants of the king's household be equal. Scullery maids are as essential as lords in waiting. So here's the thing. Sometimes you have to act a humble part in order to be used by God. Well, sometimes what God has to do, he has to humble you intentionally, just like he did with Israel. Now here, Israel had to be humiliated first. God brought them to that point of humiliation before he ever gave the victory. Now, of course, that's forced humiliation. And as I say, sometimes God has to bring you to that place. But there are other times as Christians, what we really need to do is to gladly humble ourselves before God. In order for God's work to succeed, somebody has to do the menial task that others simply think that they're too good to do. Somebody has to do it. I love it when there are church members who come to me and they say, Now, Pastor, I don't have to stand behind the pulpit. Do you need me to clean the restroom? I'd be willing to do that if that's what you want me to do. I see people walking across the parking lot and some of them will pick up a piece of paper and they'll throw it in the trash can. And yet there are other members that walk across the parking lot and they skip over that because they know somebody else will do that for me. Somebody else will pick it up. Now, here's the kind of thing I like. Some of you will walk across the carpet and you'll complain because you see a spot there. But then David Morrow comes along and he says, I'll go get the shampooer and I'll clean that spot up. That's what I like. There's some of you that'll go out there and you'll look at the yard and you'll say, well, what happened this week? There's a dead spot in the grass. What's wrong with those guys? But you know what comes happens? Dave Sharon, Gary Moline, the yard crew, the you fellows that work on that, you'll go out there and you'll take care of that problem for everybody else. There are so many things in the church that get done because not everybody has to be the big shot. And that's the only way that a church is going to work. Then there are some of you who say, you know, there's a problem over there. That really needs to get fixed. Where's Grant Evans? Go get Grant Evans. Get him, get get that fixed. And you know what? Grant Evans will come and fix it. And uh, at his age, he'll do five times the work that most of us will do. And then there's some people who say, you know, I'll, I'll come and help you. But they never show up. Well, there are lots of us, lots of people among us who have eaten crow in order to receive their crown. And they're going to receive their crown while those of us who've been back here feasting on filet mignon and and too sorry to do anything for anybody around here, we're not going to receive the crown. They're going to do it because they ate crow first. Well, let's shift gears for just a minute. And I want to talk to you about three more truths that are found in chapter 8. Those first four lessons are practical ones. And now we're going to look at some doctrinal truths from this. Let's go back to the chapter again. This time I want you to go to uh, uh, verse number 30. Joshua chapter 8, verse number 30. Then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, 
As Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man hath lift up any iron. And they offered thereon burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there upon the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. And all Israel and all their elders and officers and their judges stood on this side of the ark and on that side before the priests, the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, as well as the stranger, as he that was born among them, half of them over against Mount Gerizim, and half of them over against Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded before, that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not found a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua read not before all the congregation of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversant among them. Well, here's what they do. After, after the victory at Ai, Ai uh, Joshua gathers all the people of Israel into a valley between two mountains. On one side, there's Mount Ebal, and on the other side is Mount Gerizim. I don't have time to go into this to read all the reasons why they did this, but if you want to check it out a little bit further and see what was going on here, go to Deuteronomy chapter 27 and chapter 28, and that'll give you the background of what took place here. But Moses gave this command. He said, when you enter into the, present, uh, into the promised land, here's what you need to do. You need to get those people in the valley and line them up just like I told you to do. Well, this was a very unusual thing because they were told to put the Ark of the Covenant in the valley between these two mountains. Now, the Ark, of course, represents God's presence among the people. So you have the priests and you have the Levites and you have all the people and they surround the Ark of the Covenant. Then they split the people into two groups. One group has their back to Mount Ebal and the other group puts their back to Mount, Mount uh, Gerizim. Then Joshua begins to read all of the law. He read blessings and cursings from the law. So he reads the cursings, and while he's reading the cursings, all the people with their backs to Mount Ebal, they shout, Amen. Every time he reads a curse, they all shout, Amen. Then he reads the blessings. And when he reads the blessings, all the people with their backs to Mount Gerizim, they shout, Amen. And they do that until all the law is read. Well, I want you to notice three more truths that we learn about this in this chapter. Truth number five is that God's altar is the solution for sin. Joshua was instructed to build an altar on on Mount Ebal. Well, in the Old Testament, we know that an altar is always a place of sacrifice. Whenever there's sin, God brings judgment, and God's judgment for sin is always death. The reason that God says to bring a sacrifice for sin is that God is teaching the people that it's possible for an innocent to die, one who's innocent to die for the guilty. Now, of course, when they brought an animal to sacrifice, that animal had never done anything itself. But a principle is being taught that you can take this innocent victim and he can stand in the place of those who have committed sin or in the place of everybody that's guilty. Well, I don't think anybody here has a problem recognizing that that is a picture of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. The cross was actually God's altar. And that's where the innocent Son of God was taken, and he was slain for all of us who are guilty. 
So God's judgment was poured out on Jesus. And as he was hanging on the cross, he took the full penalty of the wrath of God that was against us. Well, the cross is always God's solution for sin. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Jesus then is the only answer. And the cross where Jesus died is God's altar. And there God made a sacrifice. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that we sacrificed Jesus Christ. We didn't do that. God sacrificed him. God sacrificed him for us. And so once Christ has been sacrificed, there's never a need for any other altar. There are no more altars in the New Testament. The cross is the altar that God set up as a sacrifice for sin. Now I'll state this again because I've said it many times before. At invitation time, I always make it very clear that when you come to, our, to the steps here in front of this church or you come to this area, you do not come to an altar. We don't have an altar in Berean Baptist Church. And the reason that we don't, and the reason that we don't have quote-unquote altar calls is because there was only one altar, and that was the altar of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need any more altars. So that's sufficient for us, and that's what the Bible's teaching God's altar is always the solution for sin. Truth number six is that God calls sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. Now, there's a very interesting aspect of this, I think, uh, concerning the building of this altar. This altar is to be constructed on Mount Ebal and not on Mount Gerizim. Does anybody know the reason why? Well, the reason why is because the curses were to be read from Mount Ebal. And what's the cross? What's God's altar? God's altar is a place of cursing. In, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So what's the altar for? It's for everybody that's under the curse. In other words, an altar is a place for sinners. Well, some of you probably recognize the name Mount Gerizim. If you've read John chapter 4, you know that Jesus met the woman at the well, at Jacob's well. And she asked Jesus a question about, about Mount Gerizim. And she said to him, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Well, the mountain that she's talking about there is Mount Gerizim. And Mount Gerizim was never a place where they were supposed to worship. And that's because the blessings are read from Mount Gerizim. The altar's over here on Mount Ebal. That's the one that represents the curse. And everybody who's on Mount Ebal recognizes the fact that they're a sinner. And they've acknowledged their sin. Well, the problem with the Samaritans and the problem with the woman at the well, they didn't recognize their sin. Instead, they thought that any place was good for worship because they were self-righteous. They were looking to them through themselves. And as long as a person is self-righteous, he's never going to come to Christ for cleansing. He never comes to Jesus. So Jesus had to correct her in this. There was a problem with her worship. He said, you can't worship on Mount Gerizim. And so then he exposed her sin. And you remember, he told her she had five husbands and she was living with a man who wasn't her husband. And so here you have all these Samaritans and what they're dependent upon is self-righteousness. But do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? They had the very same problem. I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
And so Mount Gerizim versus Mount Ebal is the recognition of where we stand in the eyes of God as sinners. Now, number seven, the seventh truth that we learned here. Keep your sorry hands off of God's stuff. Look at verse number 31. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man hath lift up any iron, and they offered thereon burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. When Joshua built this altar, he must follow the command of God that it's to be made out of stones that have not been shaped in any way. Well, what's the temptation of man with his worship? The temptation here would be to build a beautiful altar. Build an altar that's a a magnificent edifice. Let's take stones and let's trim those stones. Let's cut those stones. Let's make sure that every stone is perfectly square. Let's make sure that all the mortar joints are exactly equal. And then when we're finished with this altar, it'll be a beautiful structure that we have built to God. But they couldn't do that. And the reason that they weren't to do it They weren't to take any stones that had been shaped in any way was to show one thing. Salvation is all of God. You don't bring anything. You don't contribute anything to this. You don't just come as a sinner to God. Now, that's absolutely essential. I mean, you have to recognize that you're a sinner. You don't just come to to God recognizing there must be a substitute for your sin. That's not enough. Now, surely that's important, but it's not enough. And you you know why I say that? Because there are many people who say, yes, I'm a sinner. And I do believe that Jesus died on the cross. What's essential and cannot be left out, that even though you recognize those things, you cannot bring anything with you. You don't have anything, not a speck of anything to offer God. Now, some people think, well, well, I'm a sinner. Jesus died for my sins. I acknowledge that. And so now what I need to do, I need to bring my faith to God. And there are many Baptist preachers who preach it exactly that way, but they preach it exactly wrongly. And they teach that man's contribution to his salvation is his faith. God does his part, and you do your part. Here's the truth. You don't have a part. You don't contribute anything to this. I mean, absolutely zero. You don't bring anything to salvation. Even your faith, the Bible teaches us, is a gift from God. So... No matter how badly you want to put your hands on God's stuff, no matter how badly you'd like to have a part of your own salvation and bring something to offer God, the simple truth of the matter is, if you are going to be saved, you bring nothing. Salvation is all of him, and you must depend on God alone. I want to remind you of Augustus Toplady's beautiful hymn, Rock of Ages. In his hymn, he wrote, In my hand, no price I bring, simply... To thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's a great hymn. Jesus is the rock of ages. The Bible teaches that he's the fountain that flows for sin. So don't ever think that you can even make the minutest of any contribution to your salvation. You can't add anything to Jesus' work. So here's what happens. Joshua corrected the mistake. He followed God's plan. He dealt with sin in God's way, and he built an altar. And friends, God's altar is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
That's the only remedy for sin. It's the only remedy for every sinful mistake that we've ever made. The only place that we can go is to the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, that we might look to you in faith, faith given to us by Almighty God himself. We thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice of Christ and help us to understand there's nothing in our hand that we can bring, no price that we can pay because Jesus paid it all for us. Thank you for these simple truths that we learn. May we take them to our heart and understand what it takes to be successful in our Christian life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing.